Welcome to the Fort Hill Community Church Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us this morning. It's great to be back with you. My family was gone last week. We were in Mississippi. My sister got married, and we had an awesome time down there. Um, one of the more stressful trips, our car broke down 30 minutes from the airport. We were getting ready to leave, but thanks to Uber, God, thank you for Uber, we got where we needed to get to, and uh, and now we're back here with you guys. So it's wonderful joining uh, you all again as we continue in this Christmas sermon series that we have, that we're calling Have Seen a Great Light, as we look at the Christmas story as foretold in the Old Testament. And so today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. Verses 13 to 23, so you can turn there in your Bibles, but we also will have the text up behind us as well. But before we get there, um, before we get there, what I want to do is just introduce the message today. And I'm going to introduce the message today by using a special meal that my family likes to eat, okay? I don't know if any of you guys have ever had chicken adobo before, chicken adobo, okay? It's the best. It's a meal that Hannah makes from time to time. It's, a, it's from the Philippines, Filipino dish. Whenever Hannah was in Australia, she had a friend that was Filipino, and she got this dish, uh, her family, this, this, lady's, this girl's family would make it called chicken adobo. And it's one of these rare times where the leftovers are better than the initial meal, okay? You don't really get that a whole lot. The leftovers are better, okay? It's like... It's like chicken and like soy sauce and vinegar. It's pretty tangy, garlic. It's got like veggies in there. Uh, maybe we'll make it for you guys sometime. So, you know, I, I really like chicken adobo, but I like even more leftover chicken adobo. That's like the primo stuff, right? And that's hardly ever the case. When is the sequel better than the original, okay? Like right now, Home Alone, great Christmas movie. Home Alone 2, eh, it's okay. Home Alone 3, who's even seen that one, right? Okay, chicken adobo is the same way. Chicken adobo is awesome. The leftover, actually chicken adobo is the opposite. The leftovers are better than the original. In today's message, we're going to see this theme play out. And it's sort of an interesting sort of metaphor to use chicken adobo as an introduction to something about Jesus. But just hang on with me here, okay? We're going to see this theme of the second version of a thing being better than the first version. The second version is better than the first version. And we're going to see that today played out in this prophecy of Christmas. We're going to see how Jesus is the greater second version than the first. And we're going to do that by looking at Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 to 23. We're going to see that Jesus is the greater son the greater son, and we're going to see that Jesus brings a greater covenant. And so if you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, we're going to read two prophecies together, and we're going to sort of unpack this idea of the second being greater than the first. This is what it says. Now when they departed, and so they is Mary, Jesus, and Joseph, and uh, Jesus is a little baby, okay? Whenever they departed from Bethlehem, 
Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother to flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So Jesus, instead of going to his hometown Nazareth, they stay in Egypt to escape the threats of Herod. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in her ma, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused, she refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, and take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over uh, Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Here we have a very interesting, very small section in Matthew that gives us sort of the early childhood years of Jesus. And this is really all that we get. This is the story of how Jesus, after he was born in Bethlehem, finally makes it to where he actually grows up in Nazareth. And he, act, he takes quite, a, um, he takes quite a, a long path to get there. This passage is unique because it's the only passage that deals with Jesus as a child. If you were to go to the next verse in Matthew chapter 3, we see John the Baptist. And we're kind of pushed forward many decades into whenever Jesus is an adult. And so between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of Matthew chapter 3, Matthew sort of skips over three decades of Jesus' life, and we go from baby Jesus to adult Jesus. That's, that's what happens as we move forward. So this little section in verse 13 to 23, it's all that we have of the early years of Jesus' life. And what we see is that Jesus' early childhood is an incredible story of survival, right? I have... You know, this could be its own movie. Jesus has a, a king, King Herod, out to kill him. That's something we don't think about with the Christmas story, okay? A king is out to kill Jesus, and his earthly father Joseph and mother Mary, who are just young kids at this point, have to run away to the land of Egypt and then finally make it out to Nazareth. And it's within this context of this crazy sort of bloodthirsty um, king after Jesus that we see the first prophecy of Jesus fulfilled. And that's in verse 15, the prophecy uh, that Jesus is the greater son. Jesus is the greater son. What does that mean? Well, let's work through that together. Let's reread the prophecy here. Joseph rose. He took the child and his mother. So he took Jesus and Mary by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. 
This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. You might not realize that the time of Jesus, that Jesus was born, was a time of infanticide. We celebrate this Christmas season of joy and blessing and all that, but on the ground was the slaying of innocent babies. And that's exactly what it tells us here. And it was the birth of Jesus that kicked this off. During the time of of Jesus, there was a king, that was King Herod. He was sort of king of the Jews. He wasn't like the head honcho guy. The Romans were the head honchos. But for the Jews, the head honcho for the Jews was King Herod. And King Herod was afraid that this baby that was born was going to take his power. That this baby that was born, if you have read the Matthew story, you know that the wise men come from the east, they come to Herod, they say, we're looking for the Savior who's born. The star told us that the Savior is here, we're looking for the baby, and then they finally make it to Jesus. Well, that tipped Herod off, that maybe I should be worried about this baby that was born, and you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to kill this baby. And so in verse 16, we hear that Herod sends his um, sort of minions to Bethlehem, and it says that he killed all the male boys two years old and under in that region. How crazy is that, right? How frightening is that to think about in light of Christmas, the Christmas season, that this is actual is happening in and around Jesus, and that's what made Joseph run away, as any father would do, to take his family out of harm's way. And it says that they went to Egypt. And thus, that filled the prophecy here that we see. It was out of Egypt. Jesus was in Egypt for a little bit. It was out of Egypt that Jesus came, uh, and then his family eventually settled in Nazareth. And it was in Nazareth where Jesus grew up. All of this, we are told, was to fulfill what God had prophesied before. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, and that's what's quoted here um, in our text in Matthew. It says, when Israel, this is quoting from Hosea, the prophecy. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So that's the prophecy that is fulfilled in Jesus. Now there's a lot of significance in this text, and we get introduced the idea of two sons. And just to to preface, we're going to be in the Old Testament today, and there's going to be a lot of text we're dealing with. So hold on tight with me. We're going to really get deep into it. But the, the text in Hosea, again, Hosea was a prophet that lived hundreds of years before, and he's giving this prophecy, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my own son. There's something deeply significant here. And we're introduced to the idea of two sons. We all know that Jesus is the Son of God, right? God the Father sent His Son, Jesus, into this world as the Son of God. But did you know that God has another Son? God has another Son. Who is that Son? That Son is Israel. Son is Israel. Israel is described in the Old Testament as God's Son. The relationship between God um, in the Old Testament is people of Israel is described as a father-son relationship. And that's what we see with the prophecy here with Hosea, referencing the Passover. Uh, Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, was also in Egypt. We know the story of the Passover. Israel is in Egypt. They're slaves in Egypt. And God brings them out of Egypt through 
Moses, and it's during that time that we see this relationship described between God the Father and Israel as a son. I'm just going to read this from Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. It says this. This is Moses talking to Pharaoh uh, whenever, you, you know the story, let my people go, all that good stuff. This is what Moses says to Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And so it's very interesting. We can look at the Old Testament, and we see the relationship between God the Father and Israel described as a son-father relationship. And then we look at the New Testament, and we see a similar relationship, a father-son relationship between Jesus and Israel. And both are, ca are called out of Egypt. Israel is brought out of Egypt, and Jesus is brought out of Egypt. And Jesus coming out of Egypt is a fulfillment of that prophecy in Hosea. So going back to the idea there of the chicken adobo, it's better the second time, okay? The chicken adobo is better the second time. There were two sons that came out of Egypt. The first was Israel. The second was Jesus. It's better the second time. Jesus is the greater son. Jesus is the better son. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, if you've read it, there's a theme that um, you can sort of notice as you go along. It's called the theme of the second son, uh, mo it's called the second son motif, where the second son is greater than the first son. The second son is greater than the first son. In Middle Eastern culture, this is typically not the case. It's highly unusual. It's typically the first son that has the place of honor and blessing. It's the first son who gets the inheritance of the father. It's the first son that gets the estate of the father, who has the name and the reputation of the father. And this isn't just the Middle East. I mean, this is true throughout history. Um, America, right, we were basically founded by a bunch of second sons that came over from England. Why did the second sons come over from England? Because they didn't get anything. The first son got everything. Like in my household, uh, Abram would have stayed in England and gotten my estate. Levi would have come over to America and tried to start off new, right? Because they didn't get anything. In the Bible, though, very curiously, if you read through what you understand is that typically it's not the first son that has honor, but the second son. This is a theme, okay? Story of Cain and Abel. Okay, who was born first? Cain. Who did God honor by receiving his sacrifice or his, his offering? Abel. Abel was the second son. And then what did Cain do to Abel? Cain killed Abel. And why did Cain kill Abel? Because he was jealous that Abel was the favorite son. Abel was the second son. Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael and Isaac. They were both the sons of Abraham. Who was the first son of Abraham? Ishmael. The second son was Isaac. Who was the son of promise? The second son. Okay? And then finally, Isaac had two kids, Esau and Jacob. Who was the second son? Jacob was the second son. Who was the son of promise? Jacob. Jacob was the second son. So if you read throughout the Old Testament, second son, second son, second son, 
it eventually gets to Genesis chapter 48, verse 17, where we see it explicitly stated, this is Jacob, who is the second son. I told you we're going to be in the Old Testament, so you guys got to hold on tight. Jacob, who is the second son, then blesses two of his, two of his grandchildren. And this is what it says. When Joseph, who was the son of Jacob, saw that his father Jacob laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, who was the son of Joseph, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Ephraim's the younger, Manasseh's the older. And Joseph said to his father Jacob, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. So bless the firstborn, the older, don't bless the younger. But the father Jacob refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. We see that theme expressed through Jacob, the theme of the second son. Now, listen to me. God called two sons out of Egypt. He called Israel first. He called Jesus second. Jesus is, in this instance, in this vantage point, Jesus is the second son. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament theme of the second son, the greater son. It's very interesting to see that. That's, that's in there. and It's kind of deep in there, but it's in there. Now, why is this important? Okay, what we've, what we've done is we looked at Old Testament prophecy to see that Jesus is the New Testament version of Israel, because they both come out of Egypt. And we've also seen that he has a higher position than Israel, because he's the second son, following the second son motif. Now, why is that important? Why do we need to know this? We need to know this because Israel's story is a lot like our own story, okay? Israel was God's chosen people. Out of all the people in the world, God's looking out, all the people in the world, all the people he created, he chooses one people to be his people. One people to be in special relationship with him. One people to be his representative to the world. And he brings his people out of Egypt. Slaves, 400 years. We haven't even been a country in America for 400 years. These people were enslaved for 400 years. God brings them out through the Red Sea with Moses. They get to Mount Sinai. The whole mountain's blowing up. God says, you will be a holy nation. You will be a kingdom of priests. You will be a people of my own possession. Here's my Ten Commandments. Follow it. And yet by the end of the Old Testament, we see that they largely failed to live up to their calling. They weren't running after their God. They ran after other gods. Because of that, they were taken out of their land. They were exiled. They lost everything that God gave them, and they were looking for a Savior. They were looking for a Redeemer. They were looking for someone that God was going to send to make everything right. We, likewise, are a people made in the image of God, created by God, called to be in relationship with Him, called to be his representatives in this world. And yet we too fail to meet the standard that God has set for us. 
God has said, do this, this, and this. Follow me. Be in relationship with me. Love me. Have no other gods before you than me. And what have we done? Just like Israel, right? I don't know if you've read the Old Testament. You read the story of Israel, like, man, these guys keep messing up. They get the Ten Commandments. They're going to the Promised Land. They get scared. They don't do what God tells them to do. And then they do what God tells them to do. It's too late. They're in the wilderness. They finally get the promised land. They keep messing up. And you're like, wow, these Israelites can't get their act together. Then you think about yourself. You're like, well, I kind of like these guys. right? I keep messing up. I need someone to come because I can't fix this mess on my own. This is the beauty of the Christmas season. That God does not leave us in our predicament, but he sends another son. Not like Israel, who failed the test, but his son Jesus, who is everything that we were not. We are much like the first son. We need the second son. We need our our bigger brother Jesus, if you want to think about it that way. Our bigger brother Jesus, who did not fail the test, and yet took the punishment as if he did. Who lived the perfect life, and yet underwent the judgment as if he did not. Whenever we believe that, the Bible says that we are adopted in the family of God. I love this text in Romans chapter 8, verse 15. It says this, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are fellow heirs, fellow heirs. If my dad passes away, my mom passes away, they leave an estate to us, he's going to leave it to me, my brother, my two sisters. We are fellow heirs because we're siblings. For those who believe in Jesus, who are adopted in the family of God, he calls us fellow heirs with Christ. How crazy is that? What does Jesus have? Everything. He is God over everything. What the Bible says, what God says is because we're fellow, fellow heirs with Jesus, we get what Jesus gets. That is eternal life. That is eternal life. This is what is unique about the Christian faith, that God welcomes us as his sons and daughters into his family by sending his own son. You could think about heaven as a big family reunion that Jesus has inaugurated here with the advent of Christmas. He is the second son. He is the greater son, and he has fulfilled what the first son did not fulfill and what we did not fulfill. Jesus, our big brother. That brings us to the second prophecy that's fulfilled here in Matthew chapter 2, and that's verse 16 to 18. And we're going to see the Old Testament fulfillment sort of ramping up. Not only is Jesus the second son, the greater son, but he also brings a greater covenant. And so let's read this in verse 16. Then Herod, so again, going back to the birth of Christ, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time, according to the time that was ascertained from the wise men. Okay? Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, 
She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Here again we see the horrific events surrounding the birth of Jesus from King Herod and what, what he did. And we are told specifically that what Herod did is actually fulfilling what Jeremiah said would happen. And that's what they quote here, a voice is heard in Ramah. This is quoted from Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And what Jeremiah is saying, this verse in 18, it says a voice was heard in Ramah. Ramah is just a town, it's uh, about five miles north of Jerusalem. And he says, Rachel is weeping for her children. Who is Rachel? Rachel is the matriarch of Israel. Jacob's wife is Rachel, and she's sort of um, the personification of the Israelite women, mothers, who are crying for their children who have been taken for them, from them. In Jeremiah's time, and again, Jeremiah is prophesying hundreds of years before, during his time, the nation of Israel was under intense distress. They were being taken from their land. Uh, invaders from the north were coming in and taking them. They were exiling them. They were killing them, and they were separating families. And so what was happening is the Israelite women were weeping for their lost children. Much lamentation as these children were ripped away from them. And we see the same type of thing happening in the time of Jesus. And so that's a connection between Israel in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. God's people being killed um, by foreign adversaries and foreign enemies. But there's something more here that I think is interesting. There's something so stark about this story. I, I mean, I, I doubt if, I mean, whenever we talk about Christmas, this never comes up, and that's kind of why I wanted to chat about it. These prophecies never come up. Christmas is joyful. Christmas is glad. But there's tragedy and the heart of it as well. Incredible grief in the midst of incredible joy. Think about the shepherds, right? Whenever the angels come to the shepherds, what do they say? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now think about the mothers of Bethlehem. They didn't have good news, right? They didn't know. The shepherds hear this message of good news of great joy for all the people, but then we see tragedy. One thing that I pull out of this, that, or I guess a principle that I pull from the Christmas story, is that while there is grief, there's a promise of greater joy. While there is loss, the gain is greater than the loss. While these children are lost, the Son of God is not lost. Jesus will die, but he's not going to die at the hands of Herod. He's going to die at the hands of the Romans on a cross many years later. And so I think what we can pull from this is a principle. Great grief, but greater joy. Christmas teaches us from this, great grief, but greater joy. This is the Christian faith in a nutshell. It is real about pain. It is real about struggle. It is real about burden. It doesn't turn a blind eye to these things. It overcomes those things. It promises a greater joy to come, a redemption to come. Yes, the sons of these ladies, of these women in Bethlehem are lost, but a greater son is given, a greater son that will lead to their 
salvation. Yes, great grief, but greater joy. That's what we see in Matthew. We can take this principle and go back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, where this prophecy comes from, where we see Rachel grieving for her children. And if we read in Jeremiah 31, we see the same idea. Great grief, but greater joy. If you don't know the book of Jeremiah or the prophet Jeremiah, if you ever want to read a book that's going to get you down, read the book Jeremiah. The guy is known as the weeping prophet, okay? The guy is known as a weeping prophet. The whole book is judgment, death, judgment, death, unfaithfulness, judgment, okay? Bad news. That's what the whole book is. He's writing during a time of great grief. Again, enemies are coming to Israel to take them away, to take their children away, to enslave them. And that's what the whole book is about. But in the midst of that grief, we get a reprieve. And that reprieve is here in Jeremiah 31 where, where we get a promise of greater joy. So I just want to read this. I'm going to read this at length, okay? This is Jeremiah 31, verses 1 to 14. It says this. I'm going to start in verse 2. Thus says the Lord, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. So that's just a great theme. You survived the sword. That's the grief. But now there's grace coming, and it's grace in the wilderness. So you're still roaming around, and you're still not really sure if things are going to work out because you're in the wilderness, but you found grace. Okay. When Israel sought rest, the Lord appeared to him from afar. The Lord says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you. And you shall be built, O virgin Israel. So, again, a, a promise. Things have been destroyed, but we're going to build you back. We're going to return you. We're going to restore what was lost. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines. And you shall go forth in the dance of merrymakers. So, singing and dancing were taken away from you, but you're going to sing and dance again. Again, you shall plant vineyards in the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant, and you shall enjoy the fruit. For there will be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. So not only will I restore the provision, restore your crops, but I'm going to restore your relationship with me. I'm going to provide for you physically, but I'm going to change your spirit to where you want to come, arise, and go to Zion and worship me, the Lord our God. That's what God's going to do. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant women, and she who is in a labor together. A great company they shall be. So not only the people in Israel who are being killed, but the people who have been taken away as slaves, God says, I'm going to bring all these people back to their homes. Even the lame, even the, the blind, even the pregnant women in labor. So that's just saying the, the people who are sort of on the, who are most at risk, the people who are most frail, the people who would probably not make the journey, right? Because it's hard, if you're 
nine months pregnant, right? It's hard to make that journey, right? Ask Hannah. Um, fortunately, we don't have to travel anymore until the baby's here. So, um, But that's what he's saying. All these people are going to bring come back. Verse 9. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Again, that father-son family description of their relationship. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young of the flock and their herd. Their life shall be like a water garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy, I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Can you imagine being taken away as a slave, right, from the north? Canada's to the north, that never happened, but let's say your whole family is taken away, and you're way up, you know, like Labrador someplace, I don't know. Way up in Labrador, freezing. And then you get this message from God that says that I will restore you to what you had lost before. And I'll put a song in your heart and dancing on your feet. That's good news. Great joy. Then we get verse 15, and this is the one that was quoted in Matthew. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. There's the grief that we see. But continuing, verse 16, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Grief turns to joy. In all of this, in Jeremiah 31, the only verse that is a verse of grief is verse 15, and it is overcrowded by joy. The whole thing is joy eclipsing grief. That is exactly what we see in the Christmas story with Jesus. Joy eclipsing grief. Again, if you know the book of Jeremiah, you know there is all this bad news. But now we get a reprieve, we get this good news. Great grief, greater joy. But now the question is, how is this going to happen? How is God going to do this? And a bigger question is, why is God going to do this? Why is God going to do this? Doesn't Israel deserve what it's getting? Hasn't Israel turned their backs on God? And that's true. Israel has been unfaithful. The nation, God's people have run after other gods. And these foreign invaders are coming because Israel never repented. They never turned. Now they are reaping what they're sowing. So why is God going to change? Why is God going to turn their grief in? 
to joy. And how is he going to do that? Well, we get the answer at the end of here of, chap, of Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. This passage we're going to read, let me just preface this. I know we're, this is like school, theology school today, but it's, it's really important. This is one of, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, one of the most important parts of the Old Testament that we could read. It is from this passage that we understand why we need, why the New Testament happens, why Jesus comes in the first place. What God is going to do to restore the fortune of Israel, what he's going to do is he's going to create a new covenant with them. He's going to create a new covenant with them. And that's how he's going to change their, restore their fortune, bring greater joy. Now, what is a covenant? What do we mean by covenant? The word covenant means coming together. And it is essentially the stipulations or standards that must be met for two parties, two people, to be in relationship with each other. So if you have a covenant relationship, you say, we're going to come together by me keeping my promises here, you keeping your promises here. So I'm married to my wife. She's awesome. We have made certain promises to each other. And we're keeping those promises to each other. And that's what binds us together. I will be faithful to her. I will serve her. I will love her. I'll meet her needs. And she'll do the same for me. And if any of those promises are broken, then the marriage dissolves. If she's unfaithful, if she deserts me, that type of thing. We see the same type of relationship in the Old Testament. This covenant relationship between God and Israel. This is what it says in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Before, God had a covenant, what we call the old covenant, with Israel. And that was a covenant based on the law. The covenant based on the Ten Commandments. God has his people there. They, he gives them the Ten Commandments. God says, if you follow my law, if you keep these commandments, if you sacrifice to me, if you're faithful to follow everything I've told you to do, then we will be in relationship with each other. That's the old covenant. So do, do, do. Commandment, commandment, commandment. Sacrifice this animal, you know, do follow this feast, that type of thing. But the problem was they didn't keep their end of the deal. They were not faithful to the covenant. They did not worship God and God alone. They did not follow the Ten Commandments. They misstepped. They messed up. They were sinners. Two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. Then eventually they didn't even really follow God at all. And so what does God do? Does he dissolve the marriage co the covenant? Does he dissolve their relationship? Does God turn his back on his people? Does he desert them? Does he say, well... Sorry, guys, you didn't keep up your end of the deal. No, he doesn't do that. He makes a new covenant, a new standard for their relationship. This is what it says in verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. <coughs> After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each 
uh, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In the old agreement, God gave them the law, and he said, Do these things. But in the new covenant, the new agreement, the law that was external will now be made internal. Instead of calling them to do X, Y, and Z, he's going to remake them, reshape them, and change them to want to do X, Y, and Z. They're not going to fight anymore. He's going to change their hearts. He doesn't merely give them a rule book to follow. He makes them into a new people. Ezekiel talks about this where he says he gives them new hearts to replace their hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. He puts a new spirit within them to lead them to help, to help follow him. This is the new covenant that we get in Jesus. This is the core of the Christian faith. That it's not about doing X, Y, and Z in order to make yourself good with God. It's believing in Christ and Christ alone and receiving the salvation that he brings. And whenever you do that, God makes you into a person that wants to follow him. I never got that. Growing up, right, in church, my dad was a pastor. This is what we do. This is what we're supposed to do on Sundays, on Wednesdays, Sunday morning, Sunday night. This is what we do. It wasn't until I got to college, I was like, I want to do these things. And not because I just like sitting and listening to someone. I wanted these things because I want to know this God. And I want to be in relationship with this God. This God has changed my life. I desire him. And so if you move to Luke twenty-two nineteen, we see that Jesus is the fulfillment of this new covenant. It says this, And Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. He says, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the fulfillment, and this is Jesus as the greater covenant. In Jeremiah, we saw a promise. God says, I related to you this way in the past. I'm going to relate to you in a different way in the future. I'm going to give you a new covenant. Jesus says that that covenant is accomplished through his crucifixion, through his body, through his blood, whereby God remakes, uh, remakes us into a people by forgiving us of our sins, and granting us the very righteousness of Jesus. There is no greater grief than understanding just how far you are from God, than understanding just how messed up you are, that God has called you to live a certain way, and we just can't do it. We keep messing up. But there's no greater joy whenever you understand that God has accomplished all that for you, that you have only to repent and believe. This is the greater joy of Christ. God is not calling you to do X, Y, and Z. You can't do X, Y, and Z, but you don't have to do X, Y, and Z. Jesus has done that for you. He has done it for you. You have only to repent and believe. That is the relationship that God wants with you. He was looking for people who would turn from their sins and place their faith in His Son, a people that He will remake that he will put his law within, a people that will desire him. 
This ultimately is the promise that we see in Christmas of a greater joy that comes from great grief for those who believe. And so as we reflect on these Old Testament texts, I know it's pretty involved, I know it's pretty deep. I think what we see as we take a, a you know, further view back is that Jesus truly is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law. In all these ways, in the you know, coming out of Egypt, in the slaughtering of these innocent babies and all that, we see that Jesus comes and makes a better way for us, a way that we could not make on our own. He's the greater son. He secures a greater promise. He gives us new hearts. And we know no matter what the grief is, that we have greater joy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I just want to thank you for this time that we could work through your word. I know, Lord, that um, some of these things that we see are difficult, especially the subject matter as we think about the, the barbarity of the past and how much grief, Lord, that is still in this world today um, as, as we think about all the things that, that happen, all the news that comes out to us. And, we, and I think, Lord, where is the, where is the answer? what is the answer to these things? Um, is this just how it is? What we see in Christmas, Lord, is it's not how it is. That there is an answer. There is a better way. There's a greater promise. There is a greater joy. And that comes through you, Lord. That you did not leave us in our sin. That you did not leave us in this predicament. But you have made a way through Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would actually believe that. We celebrate Christmas every year. The whole um, country, Lord, and, and many countries in the world celebrate it. But don't understand the depth of it. Don't understand the gift that Jesus truly is. That it's your megaphone crying out to the world to repent and believe that he is the, great, the good tidings of great joy. But you have to receive that. You have to actually believe that. And see your grief turn into joy. That's the great promise. I pray that people would actually attain it. I pray that, Lord, that through the preaching of your word, through just our example living out, that people would see that they have that. No matter what their situation, there is a greater joy for them. His name is Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be a people that preaches that. Help us to be a people that know your word and can see that, that lives that out. I pray for this community. I pray for this town. Pray for our people as well. Open up our minds to see these things, Lord. We love you. We thank you that you have done this. We thank you that you have adopted us into your family. We pray all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning sermon taught by Pastor Aaron Manning at Fort Hill Community Church in Gorham, Maine. For more information about Pastor Aaron or Fort Hill Community Church, visit us on Facebook or check out our website at www.forthillchurch.com.